Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, Amazon wants to jet smarter, actually wants to jet smarter and deliver your packages more quickly. Here to tell us about Amazon's foray into the world of delivery directly to the customer is our own Paul Sweeney. He is the director of research North America for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, Paul, does this mean that you can't get your brown boxes fast enough that Amazon has to go out and have its own planes deliver them directly to you? Uh, yeah, it certainly is, particularly around the holiday time when uh, you know they really their system really faces capacity issues. So this is just another example of um, you know Amazon trying to get more control over the logistics of its business uh, in the delivery of its products. To, you know, trying to get uh, more products to consumers faster. So we see them make uh, significant investments in their distribution centers, their fulfillment centers, and they're even getting into the transportation business. Uh, you know, potentially with trucks. Uh, they've actually leased a lot of uh, planes to uh, compete with FedEx and uh, UPS and even uh, cargo ships. So uh, Jeff Bezos is putting his money where his mouth is. Paul, can they really create a much more efficient system of distribution than the FedExes of the world, considering how long they've been in the business and how much reach they have? No, I, I don't think so. I think FedEx and, and UPS will still be the backbone uh, of the delivery system of Amazon products. But, uh, you know, there are certain times of the year in certain markets uh, where I think Amazon feels like they need a little bit more flexibility than what the existing uh, distribution platform can provide them. So to the extent that they can fill in some of the cracks, um, you know, maybe provide a little bit more flexibility, particularly during times of peak demand, um, whether that's in terms of transportation or warehousing or fulfillment. Um, I think Amazon's just trying to see if they can supplement what's already in the marketplace. Hey, Paul, I wonder if you could tell people how does it work that if you're a third-party seller through Amazon and you have Amazon store your products at their warehouse, what happens? Explain how that relationship works and the connection between this, uh, this initiative. Sure. So the fulfillment by Amazon or FBA is, is actually become a huge business for Amazon. Uh, more than half the products that they sell on Amazon.com are from uh, third-party providers, uh, where uh, Amazon does all the warehousing and distribution of those products. Uh, so you may be going to LLBean.com, but a lot of the logistics, warehousing, uh, and dis dis distribution of the products is actually handled by uh, Amazon for a fee. Uh, that gives Amazon a greater ability to to deliver more products uh, faster uh, to more consumers. And that's kind of, you know, what has been their value proposition. Paul, how much more is Amazon spending on shipping now than, say, a few years ago as it tries to uh, ramp up its promises of one hour delivery or, uh, or one day? Um, a lot of money. Um, you know, every single <laughs> quarter we see this company. <laughs> yeah, every single quarter we see this company put up top line revenue growth, which is what the investors are looking for, north of 20 percent. Um, yet we see the expenses for this company grow uh, also north of 20 percent. So where are those investments going? Those investments are going, you know, like we've seen over the last several years to more fulfillment centers, more warehouses, more trucks, more people, uh, again, to try to get the products closer to the end market. Um, and all that takes a lot of money. And Jeff Bezos has, you know, has the benefit in the marketplace where investors have given him a very long leash to develop that business 
at the expense of near-term profitability. So, uh, you know, I think we should expect to see Amazon continue to make these kinds of investments uh, in their business, um, you know, and, you know, hopefully profits will come down the line. Hey, Paul, I don't want to be too simplistic about this, but would this be positive for companies like Boeing and GE companies that make aircraft? I mean, I remember last year, right, didn't Boeing, uh, they agreed to operate a air cargo, not Boeing, I beg your pardon, the Air, air Transport Services Group. They would, uh, did an air cargo deal with Amazon, 20 Boeing 767 freighter aircraft. This has got to be good for airlines pilots and everybody associated with the aerospace industry, or am I wrong? Uh, you, you're right. Um, I think um, as more and more product, um, more and more retail sales uh, you know, are done online, uh, that really puts a lot of stress on the distribution system. You're not just you know, going to the local mall and buying your product. You're relying upon a global distribution system to get it to you, and that includes aircraft. And so you know, George Ferguson, who covers the airline industry for us, has been talking about some of the strengths in the uh, aircraft leasing market uh, as some of the uh, you know, a positive long-term play uh, or derivative play on the growth of e-commerce. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us. We always love speaking with you. Paul Sweeney is Director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. While the world's business jet fleet continued to grow last year, in 2016, it expanded by about 2.5% to more than 21,000 aircraft. And here to tell us about the industry and some of those 21,000 jets is Brad Stewart. He's the chief executive of ExoJet. Brad, thanks for being with us. Let's jump right in and tell us about the, the you know ExoJet and the aircraft market. Before we get to the demand side, I want you to tell me about the supply of jets and what you're seeing in the industry overall well great to be back with you Pim uh, you know these are these are different questions that um, you know I think are long-term trends that you've seen really since the global financial crisis uh, planes as you said there's a lot of them uh, there's you know in my opinion always been too many the OEMs Bombardier uh, Textron you know you name it continue to, to manufacture planes and and that produces this this glut that exists what you've seen in the last six to 12 months, though, is a little bit of tightening in what they call new inventory. So planes that are you know, three to five years since make, you're seeing a, a reduction in the am amount of airplanes that are for sale, therefore a little bit of tightening in the, in the price points. And overall, I think you're seeing a drift towards a healthier supply-demand marketplace. But the long-term trend of there being too many airplanes out there for the level of demand, uh, both for full airplanes and for charter, um, continues. Let's talk about the charter market from the demand side. I'm curious, have you seen an uptick in wealthier individuals looking to book private flights or, or what's sort of the trend there? No doubt. And say what you will about, you know, the, the social impact of the wealthy getting wealthier. But um, as, um, as we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, demand for private aviation, the hours flown, the cycles flown is up two to three times GDP. So we're seeing, you know, five, six, seven percent, depending on how you want to slice the marketplace. But there's no doubt that consumption of and demand for private aviation is is continuing to grow at, at a pretty sustained clip. Brad, can you give us some sense? Can you give some numbers to this as far as the number of flights on uh, private, privately chartered uh, aircraft or just the number of people who normally do this? It's, it's staggering, actually, when, when you step back. So we think in terms of, of hours, we, we think that sort of accounts for, you know, short flights versus long flights. 
Last year, private aviation flew about 3 million hours within North America. Um, and we're seeing that, that number up, you know, like I said, 5 or 6% year on year. So it's a, it's a massive number, a, a, a wide swath of, you know, everything from turboprops at the very low end, flying, you know, 45-minute to an hour flight, up to, you know, your ultra-long-range G650, Global Express, uh, Dassault, you know, 7X-type aircraft. Um, but, but a big market, flying a lot of hours, growing quickly. I was going to ask you which is in more demand, but I guess you're telling me that everything from turboprop, you got the small cabin, midsize, large cabin, they're all in demand. Well, there's a little bit of an interesting kind of barbell theme that you're seeing, um, and I think the, the jet smarters of the world, our partner, wheels up at the low end, are driving significant demand for the for the smaller cabin plane, and then you're seeing the the, the global Fortune 500, the wealthy, the global elite, uh, really drifting towards this ultra long range large cabin. So there's a little bit of a barbell in the growth profile. The smaller planes and the and the much larger private jets are the ones growing, uh, not at the expense of, but you know there's there's Really a difference between the, the mid-size and super mid-size. Yeah, there's, there, there's definitely a difference between a Dassault 7X, yeah, and uh, maybe something else. Um, you, you know, Brad, uh, one of the questions that always comes up, uh, I, I would imagine, is air traffic control and the FAA and the effort on behalf of uh, the government, perhaps, to privatize uh, the air traffic control system. What have you heard and what are you hearing? Yeah, there's a bunch of different themes that go on within that. You know, the first is the the technology. So I think most people who follow the industry closely know that uh, there's a there's a real focus on modernizing the technology. So there's this requirement by 2020 that all planes that are for char- for charter hire are on ADSB compliance. Um, so there's the right actions are being taken. I'm not going to drift into the politics of whether um, you know ATC should be privatized or not. In my opinion, they're doing a good job. They're making the right steps. Is it as quick as we'd all like? Um, you know, I don't think it really ever is. Well, but, um, but, but but it's okay. But Brad, there's a larger question here, which is traffic in general can be really tough, especially at popular airports. How do you get around that with chartered flights? Well, I think this is one of the big benefits of of flying private. So. Um, you know, look at the, the major markets, the tri-state and uh, Southern California, what you see is most private aviation flights, the vast majority, in fact, are actually going into airports that are not uh, either um, commercial at all or certainly not dominated by commercial. So flying private actually works around that quite a bit. Um, you know, obviously, there's a little bit of a hangover effect when there's congestion at LAX or JFK. But by and large, um, private sort of circumvents that that sort of... Um, pinch point, if you will. Thank you so much for joining us. Brad Stewart, Chief Executive Officer of XOJet, talking about chartered aircraft and PIMFOX. Let me just tell you, $8,500 an hour for some of these uh, flights or a flight hour. So uh, not cheap, but evidently there are lots of people willing to uh, willing to shell that out. But it comes with pillows, blankets, and I think whatever you'd like to eat. Yeah, I don't think that's the peel. I mean, yes, but I think that it's uh, the idea of not having to take your shoes off and take your jacket off and, and have somebody patch you up and down and then still might you know, be three hours late because of a delay.
Pam, you know, there was a report put out by J.P. Morgan that caught my attention. It was by quantitative and derivative strategist Marco Kalanovic, and he was saying that he is expecting a potential, quote, great liquidity crisis when the central banks start withdrawing cash from the system, shrinking their balance sheets, possibly as soon as early next year or later this year. Uh, this will lead off a substantial crisis in markets. And uh, here to weigh in on that is Bruce Biddles. He is chief investment strategist at Baird, and he joins us from the lovely Sarasota, Florida. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Do you agree uh, with this assessment that there is the potential for a, quote, great liquidity crisis? Well, I'm not so sure I would use the term great, but I certainly could see a liquidity problem. Um, Eight or nine years ago, when the when the central banks began quantitative easing, they were adding liquidity to the system. Now the U.S. and uh, and Canada both have withdrawn from that, so now there's a slight tightening there. But if you look at what's going on in Europe and Japan and uh, elsewhere, uh, quantitative easing is still robust and adding liquidity in very large amounts to the system, and a lot of that liquidity that is generated overseas, finds its way into our markets as well. So at this point, I don't see a problem. Now, with that said, if the European central banks all of a sudden realize that their economies are surging and inflation is beginning to uh, resurface and they begin to cut back, then I can see certainly where the markets could be in jeopardy because quantitative easing and 0% interest rates have been a very, very strong support for the market uh, throughout most of this bull market. Do you believe, uh, Bruce, that if indeed that accommodation is withdrawn, that corporate earnings are going to more clearly drive asset prices? Well, there's there's no question about that. I think that's almost by necessity, given the valuations we're seeing in this market. I mean, valuations today are as high as we've seen in, oh, in 2000, 2007. I mean, they're really stretched here. So it's going to be um, up to corporate earnings to close that gap. Now, I think the why the markets are acting so 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 powerful right here in the past month or so is because the economy is stronger than most economists believe. You can look at the ISM numbers uh, today, the non-manufacturing numbers, the best since 2004 or five. the manufacturing ISM number, the best since 2004 or five as well. And, um, and that's before you get the potential for a tax uh, cut here, which would spur the economy even further. So the markets are really, I would say, depending greatly on corporate earnings coming through in the next um, year, certainly given these valuations. And I think given the economy and what we're seeing in terms of inflation now, we're starting to see some pickup in pricing pressures. So if, if, if these corporations can can indeed raise prices, and we saw that today with uh, Netflix, if they can indeed raise prices and, and maintain or increase their top-line growth, then you're looking at a very, very strong bottom-line growth potential. Bruce, are you uh, thinking in line with many others out there that in this environment, U.S. stocks, good bet? Yeah, I've been a proponent of the U.S. market now for quite a while. I know the European markets and some others are outperforming this year, but that's been the exception. Um, for the past five, six years, the U.S. markets have outperformed everybody. And I, I think at, at the end of the day, that's going to continue. 
So, Bruce, is the best way to get exposure through a broad index fund of U.S. stocks like S&P 500 tracker, NASDAQ, uh, and just go through it that way? Or is this a more selective time? I I think it's a more selective time. Uh, If the market is being driven by um, stronger economic growth, then you want to be in those sectors that 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 will benefit the most. And, of course, they would be the material sector, the industrial sector. And if interest rates are going to go up, it'll be in the financials as well. And if you look at the last six months, the leading sectors in the market have been those that are closely tied to the economy. Bruce, uh, you know, I know that you are a veteran of the industry. You worked at uh, J.C. Bradford, also uh, at Thomas uh, Haben Botts, trading options. In your experience, what advice or guidance would you give people to separate the news, however awful or terrible or catastrophic or upsetting it might be, from what actually drives asset values? Well, money is the lifeblood of Wall Street, and that's what eventually drives the markets. It's a supply-demand situation, the same it would be be in business. And um, with all the liquidity that the central banks have added over the years, um, certainly there's been a lot of uh, uh, demand side buildup. And also, a lot of demand has come from corporate buybacks the last five, six, seven years. And if the tech proposal is going to get th- go through this year or early next year, and we're going to bring back two or two and a half trillion dollars, some of that money is going to find its way into buybacks again. So with, with that in mind, I think you maintain your asset allocation where it is, despite these high valuations. So, Bruce, when you come into the office every day uh, in a period like this where you're seeing such low volatility and such low uh, movement, small movements in markets broadly, what, what are the first five things you look at? Well, two things I think are most important for the market, one on a particular on a short-term basis, and that is the markets typically don't get into trouble unless investors become extremely optimistic. <clears throat> and um, in this bull market <clears throat> since 2009, I mean, optimism has come in from time to time, but it's never been widespread or deep, deeply seated. As soon as the market pulls back for a couple of days, all of a sudden sentiment returns to either skepticism or outright pessimism. What I'm looking for here is if we're going to see a top in the market anytime soon, and a lot of folks are pointing to 2018 as being um, potentially problematic, I would look for either sentiment to become excessively bullish or two, uh, interest rates to rise significantly. And, and so those are the two things I'm watching, particularly rates now, because for the first time, we're starting to see some pricing pressures. The bond market is starting to react to that a little bit. But I think if the 10-year yield got above 3%, I think that would be a, a big negative for the markets. Above three, Above 3%. Yes. No. Uh, and and you do believe that the market's already priced in this tax reform or tax cut? Give me no, about 20 because seconds. it continues to go up every day. So, I mean, it's getting priced in, and probably at, when, it, when it's finally passed, it'll be fully priced in, and I wouldn't be surprised if the markets reacted negatively then. All right. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Bruce Biddles is the chief investment strategist uh, for Baird.
Right now, I want to turn our attention to Facebook. There have been a lot of uh, pretty scathing comments made about the company by congressmen and others, particularly about its lack of regulating some of the Russia-linked advertisements uh, that targeted a, a wide variety of different people uh, leading up to the October U.S. A November U.S. election. I want to bring in David Garrity, CEO of GVA Research, to talk about what the implications are for Facebook going forward. If they are regulated more tightly, this is going to be really expensive, won't it? Well, certainly Facebook as a company has tried to focus on having a very lean model, very much depending upon software algorithms in terms of managing its platform. And what's being called for here is for Facebook really to put in place more of a human element so as to effectively review and curate content that's actually going on to its site. So from that standpoint, the human costs of running this business arguably are going to be going up Certainly, they don't necessarily process information as fast as Facebook might like, so it might slow things down from the standpoint of a user experience. But relative to the issue of interference in political campaigns, I mean, this is a necessary step. Well, David, do you think it's going to be successful? Uh, that remains to be seen. I think that we're in a situation here where you know Facebook obviously has grown to be a platform where you've got two billion uh, average monthly users on it. Um, you know, is this a platform that's potentially grown out of the ability of management to control it? Um, you know, away from issues of just you know bringing more people on board to review and control. I mean, that doesn't seem realistic, does it? I mean, come on, you're going to get human beings to review all the stuff that's on the internet because it's not just Facebook. You know that it's also Google. It's any social media site because once they start to aggregate the information, it's incredibly difficult to figure out where it goes and no one is able to even figure out whether the information is accurate or not. Well, I mean, certainly that's, you know, these are all very legitimate points. And the question is, you know, can we develop technology tools to assist these people to essentially move along and have greater accuracy at a faster rate of speed? There are other issues to look at for Facebook away from just the issue of the election interference in the Senate and House Intelligence Committee activities. We've also had movement taking place in Congress uh, with regards to prosecution for sex crimes or providing information to support sex trafficking. There there is a movement in Congress to allow a law wherein state attorney generals and district attorneys would have the ability to sue Facebook, as well as other internet companies, other social media companies. Um, obviously, this is something that raises a significant litigation risk for the company. So we're not only looking here at an issue where we need to put more human elements in place, but some of the litigation risk profile around Facebook may be materially changing as well. David, are any of these risks to Facebook's fundamental business model. Are any of them being priced into its stock price? I think we're still in a situation right now getting into the fourth quarter of the year where, you know, we've had a very solid performance out of what people have been calling the FANG stocks, of which Facebook clearly is the first. And from that standpoint, it Maybe if we see a sell-off here, it may not happen until the end of the year. But I think right now we're seasonally in a point in time where portfolio managers are very much you know, inclined to continue favoring their winners. And Facebook so far this year has been a winner. So I think if there's any precipitous fall-off, we may not necessarily see it immediately. But we need to set ourselves up to think about what's going to happen in the first quarter of 2018. 
Well, I mean, because David, I'm thinking about it from from one perspective. Yes, we can't really oversee everything that goes on the internet, but Facebook could have given better disclosure about which uh, funding sources were behind different advertisements, right? I mean, that's been sort of the proposal that's put out there. Uh, that is expensive, uh, and that would also uh, raise questions about the efficacy of the ads uh, in that. Uh, given that framework. Meanwhile, litigation risk is, is massive and compliance officers required with that. I mean, it seems like those are real imminent risks. They are imminent risks, but they do depend upon how quickly, you know, Congress is going to be acting. And as we know, Congress doesn't necessarily move all that quickly. Uh, these things take time. But uh, that, hence, you know, the point I would also say to look forward more towards the first quarter of 2018, you know, these are discussions that are unfolding now. How this is implemented into regulation, into possibly new legislation, that'll take time so we have to keep a very close eye on what's taking place on Capitol Hill as far as what the risks are for Facebook stock in the first half of next year. All right. Well, let's uh, look at some of the risks because, you know, uh, November 1st, we're all going to be watching uh, hearings because Google, Twitter, Facebook, they've all said that they're going to be appearing at a public hearing uh, in Washington to address these very issues. W- what would be the stock valuation of, let's say, Facebook if it was in some way a uh, regulated utility or was considered a public utility? I mean, it would be a very profitable utility, 12 and a half, more than 12 and a half billion in annual profits uh, on, um, you know, just North the $33 billion of sales. That's a pretty good number. No, without a doubt. But the issue you have to look at here is it would be not just a regulated utility in the United States, but also in all the other markets where it's operating. So from that standpoint, you're looking at compliance costs, which are going to be unfolded across its global operations. And You know, arguably, is it going to serve to slow the growth rate uh, for Google, I mean, for Facebook? Um, yeah, that may that may actually happen, but I think it's certainly going to cut into what their profit margins are. And I think it, you know, if it does serve to slow the growth, then you see the multiple start to come under pressure. But I think, meet, you know, near term earnings expectations for the third quarter, I think, are, are safe for the fourth quarter probably as well. But it's more in terms of as we look forward towards 2018 and 2019 that we have to take into account these changing elements and how do they affect the evaluation. David, have you taken note of a change in tone by Facebook's leadership as some of these issues uh, become front and center? Well, I, I think in this regard, you know, if we go back and see what Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO, had said after the November 2016 election when he said that's a pretty crazy idea, you know, if Russia was actually meddling to where he is now, I think we're in a situation where management is really behind this. They need to get themselves out in front and basically say not that they're just going to hire a thousand people, you know, to try to review what's going on in the way of ads and such and content, uh, but I think that there needs to be something more strategic being done by Zuckerberg. This is going to be a moment where he really needs to mature, arguably, as a leader, because clearly he's very much under the scrutiny of Congress and he's under the scrutiny of other governments elsewhere around the world. You mentioned, uh, we're talking obviously about Facebook. Is Google, do you believe in the same uh, area and Twitter? 
both, I mean, all three companies that are being called to testify in public before the Senate Intelligence Committee on November 1st are, are clearly very, very much in the crosshairs. One might argue, though, <clears throat> that with respect to Facebook and to the extent to which, you know, a, a increasingly high percentage of people are depending upon Facebook as their primary news source, that it's Facebook that's really probably most in the crosshairs coming out of this in terms of these three companies. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, David Garrity, of course, is the principal of uh, GVA Research, and uh, he uh, spends a lot of time on, you know, analyzing the tech sector. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.